Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this teleconference on Interplex Holdings Private Limited. Could you please open the presentation now, as we will reference it during the call. The presentation link was included in the invitation of this teleconference. Once we are done with the prepared remarks, we will address your questions in the Q&A section. Please note that participation in this Fitch Ratings teleconference is strictly limited to invited guests. If you are not an invited guest, please disconnect at this time. Please note that Fitch does not provide investment advice, including buying, holding, or selling securities, nor does it conduct securities offerings of any kind. Opinions expressed by Fitch Ratings on this call may change in the future and are subject to the limitations and disclaimers printed on Fitch's related rating action commentaries and rating reports, and also accessible on the Fitch Ratings website. I will now hand the line over to Steve. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Steve DeRose. I'm head of Fitch's Asia-Pacific Telecommunications Media and Technology team. Uh, I'm delighted that everybody could join us this afternoon. Uh, this is an interesting company. Um, certainly, it's in a, a sector which we haven't seen many issuers from, at least coming to the market for the first time in the Asia-Pacific region. And we were very interested to, to meet the company a few weeks ago and uh, understand more about their business. And uh, we've got a good story to tell you this afternoon about why we're rating uh, Interplex double B minus. And so probably what I'm just going to hand over to uh, Nitin Sony straight away, who's the lead analyst on Interplex, and he's going to take you through the presentation this afternoon. Uh, as has been mentioned, we're available for uh, questions at the end. Okay, Nitin, do you want to take us through it, please? Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, so, hi, guys, I'm Nitin Sony. I'm a director in the GMT team, and I'm based in Singapore. So many thanks for joining the call today. Uh, we'll provide our rating rationale on Singapore-based Interplex Holding uh, Limited company today, and uh, I hope uh, everybody has the access to the presentation, which it must have circulated. Uh, so uh, we have rated this company at double P minus. That's the foreign currency and local currency IDR with a stable outlook. And we have also assigned an expected rating to the medium-term notes program of WP minus EXP. So we'll start with uh, discussing about the key rating drivers. Then we'll switch over to the rating navigator, following up with the peer comparison and rating sensitivities. And then we'll open the floor for questions and answers. So let's start with the key rating drivers. Um, and we have segregated this uh, section into two, business risk profile and financial risk profile. So at the outset, if you look at this company, this is a small uh, precision manufacturing company, which is producing, uh, designing and manufacturing interconnect and high precision components in an industry which is uh, relatively fragmented. So that is a small scale and position especially if you compare with some of the larger players like TE Connectivity, which we rate at A- with a stable outlook, Active PLC, Triple B, and Amphenol Corporation. So the ratings are uh, constrained at uh, uh, for a business risk profile, which we say the mid to low level B profile. By smaller scale, it's weaker technological capabilities, 
and it's a relatively uh, smaller market share in a fragmented market. But there are factors which mitigate its uh, business's profile. And I think the one of the key points uh, why we were comfortable with the business's profile on this company uh, with a low to mid LP was that it, it has a very niche position uh, to provide mission-critical uh, interconnect and high-precision components. These products are tailor-made for their customers, and most of the products cannot be used in other equipments or end-user devices. So unlike these larger players like T, Eptiv, and Infanol, which are uh, mostly into standardized connector products, this company is uh, very much focused on the tailor-made and customized products, which are quite unique for their customers. This company is also uh, has a position where it is a single source vendor for its products, which account for 78% of its revenue in financial year 2018. And its key products include the Interconnect, which contributes 39% of revenue, high precision components, which is about 27%, and telecom enclosures, which contribute about 19% of the revenue. And this company does have uh, 34 facilities uh, located globally, and nine R&D centers, which are uh, which has a good proximity to the to the customer premises, and that also creates some some barriers to entry. Its customers have a very high switching cost, given the fact that most of the products have a long and costly regulatory certification requirements, and typically a customer would invest in the tooling expenditure, which are required to produce components. So a regular certification requirement for automotive industry is about 18 to 24 months, over 24 months for medical and life sciences segment, and 12 months for the telecom segment. So the requirement to requirement for product customization and customer collaboration uh, leads to a long-term relationship, and with, which gives them the high retention rates. So if you turn to your slide. Uh, five, uh, we have the key uh, businesses profile elements which I have just talked about. And the last element is the diversified customer base, which you can read along with the slide six. Uh, that gives a very good visibility of a longer term relationship which this company has with its uh, key customers. Um, the revenue visibility is relatively high. It does have a solid and diversified customer base. Uh, with a long-standing relationship, and about 77% of its revenues are backed by multi-year uh, master agreements. There is a bit of a customer concentration risk, as top five and top ten customers contribute about 31% and 45% of FI18 revenue. But we think that this risk is offset by a stronger average relationship tenor of about 19 years with its top ten customers. And also, we note that its top 20 customers, which contributed about 62% of revenue, has better average credit worthiness than, than Interplex. And on, page, on slide 7, if you look at the diversity in terms of uh, region and industry, it's, it's quite diversified with uh, China is, is, is the region where it gets most of its revenue, 38%. And in terms of the industry, automotive contributes about 35%. Telecom 27, medical and life science, which is a smaller segment, but it's it's growing faster than the 
some of the other segments contributes about 8%. And I should also tell you that in terms of the gross margins, automotive and medical and life sciences are two segments which contribute higher gross margin than the telecom and the other segment. Other segment primarily comprises of the white goods and aerospace and, and other smaller segments. And the company does have a focus on the auto and medical life sciences, which have a higher gross margin. And now if we turn to the weak financial profile aspect of this credit, which is on slide 8, uh, clearly this company does have a higher financial leverage. It's We forecast that FI19, FFO adjusted net leverage will be around 4.4 uh, times, which is uh, comparatively higher than uh, compared to uh, median rated pairs at, at, at the double B category. But interestingly, this company does have a very restrictive covenants on its existing secured loan documents. The secured loan documents require this company to pay 75% of its free cash flow for debt repayment until debt to a EBITDA falls below 3.5 times. And we forecast in FI19, it will be still be higher uh, at above uh, 3.5x. So we, we forecast that debt to EBITDA will still be around 3.8 to 4x. And so the compulsory cash sweep mechanism in the secured loan documents will act and require the company to pay any excess free cash flow for debt repayment. And once debt to EBITDA falls below 3.5 times and it's above 2.5 times, then Interplex is required to use 50% of its free cash flow to repay debt. In terms of the projections, we believe that this company can grow by around a single digit, 4 to 5%, uh, which is mainly driven by the order wins in automotive and medical and life science segments. Uh, clearly, these are the two segments which company is focusing on. And it's also exposed to the increasing demand on electric vehicle segment in China. So some of the uh, companies which are uh, growing really fast in China and focusing on electric vehicles, this company does have a good exposure on, on those on those companies. And among those segments, automotive is one segment where they do have a revenue visibility. So there is an auto book of about 433 million and 491 million, which they're supposed to execute in FR19 and FR20. This is backed by uh, this is backed by the investments which the customers have already done. It's not a guaranteed revenue, but it does give a good visibility that you know it's backed by the investments by customer. And uh, we have in our base case we have taken a bit of a haircut on this you know this order book, but we do feel comfortable with the revenue visibility, especially on the auto segment. In terms of margins, this company generates uh, operating EBITDA margin of 10%, and we believe that uh, going forward in the next two years, the operating EBITDA margin will be stable or slightly improve at around 10.5 to 11%, uh, which is mainly driven by the high gross margins in the auto and medical and life science segment. And most of the contracts also benefit from the fact that they have commodity cost pass-through clauses, which uh, provides a cushion for operating margin for this company. And half of its employees in China are on contract based, so that does provide a flexible cost structure in case of in case of downturn. 
And on slide 9, if you see, we have a comparison with some of the rated, uh, publicly rated peers we have uh, compared to Interplex. Clearly, Interplex is uh, leverages at the high end of the of the companies we have rated, uh, in, uh, similar to this industry. HD Global, uh, which is also rated at double B minus, is probably has a higher leverage currently compared to Interplex, with SFO adjusting net leverage of five times. Uh, printed circuit board manufacturer TTM, which is rated at double B flat has uh, much better leverage than Interplex and FTIV and TE. They are significantly larger and uh, have a significantly better SCF profile and their leverage is much stronger than Interplex. If you now come to the rating navigator and if you move to slide 11, you would see that this is a, you know, we, we represent uh, the credit in a snapshot with the navigator. And you would see that the sector trend and diversification, which are marked with a light blue color, we believe that although that's uh, a positive aspect of the rating, that's not really driving the rating. And that's why we have colored market as, as of low importance with a light blue color. So we believe that there are two key things. One is the company's market position and the financial structure, which, are, which is really driving the rating for this company, and both of them are marked with high importance with red color. Financial structure has an arrow of which is going up, which, which basically we believe that their financial structure is going to improve because of the restrictive governance mechanism and the secured loan documents, and they are required to pay uh, a large part of their free cash flow for debt repayment. Uh, profitability and financial flexibility is, is uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, is sort of good for this credit. Uh, profitability uh, is uh, at 10%, and, and we believe that this should continue in the next two years, at least. And now if we turn to the pay comparison on slide 13, uh, you would see that uh, Interplex is clearly a smaller company. Uh, with lesser technological abilities and smaller market share in the high precision and connector industry. Um, HD Global is not clearly a direct peer for Interplex, but it's an IT service mid-tier company rated at double B minus, which has a good recurring revenue base and is growing above industry average growth, and, and that's growing at 10 to 12%. And generates a solid free cash flow uh, profile, but it's been uh, constrained because of the high leverage and aggressive shareholder returns from the private equity owner barring private equity issue, and a bit of a high customer concentration risk. TTM, which is a PCB manufacturer, is is definitely a much larger company. Uh, revenue is about 2.5 to 2.6 billion dollars, and FFO adjusted net leverage is, is is also significantly better at about three times. Management does have a leverage target of uh, getting the leverage lower than three times, and the market diversity has improved over the years for TTM, and the customer concentration risk has also uh, moderated over the years with with some acquisition. 
Uh, although this company is quite acquisitive and they keep on acquiring, uh, uh, you know, uh, small to medium-sized companies in, in one in a couple of years. And key credit weakness for TTM is its fragmented market and weak position in the value chain and, and limited pricing power. But overall, we believe that Interplex double B minus is is warranted because of its uh, stronger business profile, constrained by uh, higher leverage, and compared to uh, some of these peers mentioned here, uh, we are comfortable at double B minus. But it does have a small rating headroom, as you would uh, see in the rating sensitivities. Now, we come to the uh, page uh, slide 14, you would have uh, revenue and a bit of trend and debt and leverage. So, as I said before, we do expect the leverage to improve to 4.2x 4, 4 uh, in FR20 as free cash flow gets used to repay debt. And on slide 15, you have uh, a trend over the free, uh, FFO, free cash flow, and shareholder returns. Uh, you would see in FI18, there is a negative FCF of $44 million, which were mainly driven by the high working capital outflow during during FI18, as the company's revenue grew by about uh, 14%, and they won a significant order book in FI18, and because of the growth and investments by customers which are rooted through receivables, the working cap capital outflow was significantly larger in FY18. Uh, going forward, uh, we expect the cash conversion cycle to remain stable at about 69 to 71 days. And we don't expect uh, the company to face incrementally higher working capital outflows in FY19 and FY20. And lastly, if we come to the rating sensitivities, uh, what could lead to a positive rating action? So we believe that positive rating action is unlikely in the near term, given the high leverage. However, we may take a positive rating action if FFO just a net leverage improves to below three times on a sustained basis, and there is an improvement in market position, and annual free cash flow uh, increases to about $30 million on a sustained basis. On the negative side, if the company loses a major customer or there is a significant decline in revenue from uh, existing customers, leading to failure to achieve FFO adjusted net leverage below four times by FY21, or FFO fixed charge coverage is below 2.5 times, or sustained FCF deficit due to hard cash conversion cycle or hard in CAPEX and we may take a negative rating action on the company. So that's the presentation for me, and I will open the floor for question and answers. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, if you wish to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad and wait for your name to be announced. If you wish to cancel your request, please press the pound or the hash key. Once again, that's star followed by the number 1 on your telephone keypad and wait for your name to be announced. We have the first question from the line of uh, Mr. David Zhang. Please go ahead. Hi, this is David Zhang from BA Union. Uh, yeah, I saw the company have a global operating facilities which uh, sh um, 
and the global globalized customers. But what, from what I have seen from this issue in circular, is that uh, the top one customer is U.S. Datacom, where it's manufactured from China, and I also think that a lot of um, a lot of things are produced in China and then shipped to U.S. Given that U.S. Uh, comes for like 19% of its revenue base, I just wonder the the kind of trade dispute between U.S. U.S. and China, especially in terms of the uh, high tech and uh, electronic devices. What will the impact be on this company? Will this have a significant impact? Thank you. Okay. Thanks, David, for the question. That's a, that's a good question. Um, so basically, you're worried about U.S. tariffs getting increased, and because most of its manufacturing base in China, and how will that affect the the revenue and financial uh, better performance for this company going forward? So that's correct. That uh, one of their top customer contributes about 10 to 11 percent of its revenue, and that does have a significant uh, manufacturing as well as shipment um, in China, um, but overall, only six percent of their products are shipped outside China to U.S. And even under that six percent, only four percent of revenue is is where they are exposed to increased U.S. tariff. The balance two percent, they have agreements in place that if the U.S. tariff increases, that will be passed on to the customers. So there is a very low proportion of revenue which is actually exposed to a higher tariffs. So do we have a detailed kind? Of, yeah, do you have a detailed breakdown about how much production is from China and how much um, of revenue will be affected by the U.S. tariffs? Yeah, so as I said, uh, only 6% of the products are actually shipped outside China to U.S. So mm -hmm. if there are U.S. tariffs, only that percentage of the revenue will get affected. And out of that, only 4% is exposed uh, towards the company, while the balance is, is basically uh, will be passed on to the customer. Uh, in terms of the actual... Uh, Production in, in China, you can see uh, one of the slides in our presentation. So about 38% of the uh, revenue is is uh, produced in China, and uh, it is, I think it's fair to say that uh, most of the products which this company is manufacturing is is not meant for U.S. market. It's mostly meant for China. Thank you very much for excellent answer. We have the next question from the line of uh, Marcus Wong. Please go ahead. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for the presentation. Um, I've got a few questions. Uh, firstly, on the EBITDA margin, I mean, we compare Interplex 10 to 11% uh, versus TE connectivity and Aptive, uh, which uh, is supposed to do more generic and Interplex is supposed to do more, I mean, just uh, customize. Why is the margin difference uh, so much? Right, no T connectivity and Aptive have other, I mean, many other segments, but if I know whether you drilled down before in terms of just the auto and many medical and compare that with Interplex, why is Interplex bit uh, margins uh, much lower? That is my first question. 
Okay, yeah, thanks for the question. So let's get into a bit of a history on this company. Uh, so basically this company is a combination of two businesses. Uh, mm. This used to be a little company on Singapore Exchange called Chemtech uh, Engineering. And in 2014, uh, they acquired this company called Interplex, which was primarily a U.S.-based company. And Empic was largely a metal stamping business, but I would say, uh, fair to say that it's, it's less of a technology-oriented company. While Interplex having its exposure towards auto and uh, the connector business was more a technology-oriented business and which was, which was growing as well. At that, at that point of time, so when they, they combined this business, uh, you know, it, this company is primarily a combination of a low-tech, mm. tech metal stamping business plus a technology-oriented interconnect business applying to U.S.-based auto customers and, and growing into China, mm. and, and as well as mm. the IPC company. So that's why if you compare the operating margin of this company, which is about 10%, is definitely lower than the larger technology companies like TE and Phenol and Actif. And for just a comparison, if you maybe compare it to some of the EMS companies, electronic manufacturing companies, uh, they tend to have typically 5%. And those are basically labor arbitrage, bill-to-print kind of companies. So I would say it's, it's a bit of a combination of, of uh, those two elements of the business. They, uh, after bearing private equity, acquired this company in June 2016. Uh, they have made a number of changes on the marketing team and uh, hired a lot more senior staff at almost every uh, you know facility. And their focus largely is now on the auto and medical and life uh, life segments. During our meetings, we have of their products and definitely some of the products in the auto and medical space uh, does give you a perception that these are these are high tech customized mission critical products okay thanks thanks for that that's helpful in terms of your second question uh, you may uh, you put the interplex as a not acquisitive is that uh, based on your understanding of the management intention or is it based on uh, Opportunities in the market, or yeah, what is it based on? So first of all, they don't have much of financial flexibility to do any major M and A, as as I said, okay. I mean, secured loan documents are quite restrictive. In fact, uh, you know there are maintenance covenants on debt to EBITDA, EBITDA over interest, uh, and even on how much capex can they do. So there is uh, quite a restricted covenant in the secure loan documents, and then there is a cash sweep mechanism where they are required to pay 75% of free cash flow for uh, debt repayment. So that that gives a little flexibility for them to do any M&A, and even management uh, mm. in their commentary has stated that they are not interested in doing any any you know uh, margin acquisition in the next few years, uh, they are looking to organically grow this business, focusing on auto and medical medical space. Uh, got it, got it. Thanks for that. In terms of, you mentioned quite a lot in terms of the uh, secure loan covenants. This one revolves around the revolver as well as the syndicated loan, am I right? Yes, that's correct. So the secured loan is 
455 million in total with yeah. a 50 million revolving credit facility and uh, for the balanced term loan which is amortizing but a ballooning structure maturing in 2021 so that that both has the uh, the covenant secured loan, uh, the covenant maintenance covenant and the cash sweep mechanism as long as the secured loan is, is outstanding Okay. Given that the bond uh, mandate is uh, 550 million, and that's uh, much bigger than the overall loan amount, is there any concerns that if they manage to print more bonds here, yeah, eventually they will take out all these uh, the secured loan, then the covenants basically will not protect, yeah, because the bond documentation is not as tight as say the yeah the secured loan covenants. Yes, that that's a, that's the risk which we have highlighted in our press release that okay. the proposed program, medium-term loan program, does have weaker uh, covenants than the existing secured loan. And they, but in my conversation with the management, the management has stated mm-hmm. that even if they take out the entire amortizing term loan, they would still yeah. have the revolving facility available because that will provide some liquidity. So. They, I mean, in, in terms of our uh, management introduction, we we think that this revolving credit facility will still be there in, in the next two to three years. Okay, sure. Yeah, that's what Can I just some, maybe add some colour to that? It's it's our view that you know we you know we agree as Nitin said that you know this is a risk and that investors shouldn't shouldn't invest on the basis. That the credit quality is reliant on the um, beneficial covenants in the in the loan document because the, you know they may they may fall away over time. The company has said that um, you know it would continue to retain the uh, revolving credit facility f- to provide liquidity in China, but you know that's that's. It's something we're highlighting, which is a which is a risk. Okay, sure, thanks. I've just got a last question in terms of uh, Interplex itself. I mean, the U.S. company before it bought over has quite a long history from 1958. Is there any, any history? Have you gone back to see any uh, history of losing uh, customers or any sort? Because obviously they are the only ones making buy. I know whether along the history there's any history of losing customers uh, yeah, at all. Yeah. Okay, uh, so and we have looked at their top 20 customers, and they do have a long-standing relationship with most of their customers. Uh, mm. But uh, on, in the last two to three years, there have been uh, one case where their, one of their customers was acquired by another company, and the new share owner had to change the supply chain and were negotiating hard on the pricing. So on that occasion, the company stopped providing the services to that, that particular customer. So apart from that, we understand that management has not, not lost any customer. Even in that occasion, management claims that, in fact, they withdrew from that relationship. But apart from that, I think uh, for the top 20 customers in the last uh, four to five years, uh, they haven't lost any customer. In fact, 
the top 20 customers have steadily grown uh, in line with uh, you know the higher customer spend and uh, that that you know some of the customers have a significantly long history of relationship in some cases it's 20 plus years 25 plus years Okay, sure. Thanks, Nitin. Uh, appreciate it. That's all for me. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you wish to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad and wait for your name to be announced. We have the next question from the line of uh, Jeremy Hong. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, Nitin. Uh, thanks for your presentation. I just have one question, um, and it's and it's regarding the proposed program. Actually, I do understand that um, for for the senior bonds um, and this program per se, it, it it will actually not be guaranteed by the operating subsidiaries of China and a couple of other countries. Um, and I believe that that those countries plus China um, essentially make up quite a substantial amount of revenues and EBITDA. Um, I'm just wondering, can you basically share with, with us the reason behind that? Is it um, regulatory reasons or, or, or are there other reasons behind that? And also, is this a concern for you? Okay, thanks, Jeremy, for the question. It's a good question. Um, so as we have said in our press release, the notes are not guaranteed by operating subsidiaries in China, India, and Vietnam, which together represent about 69, 66, and 81% of revenue and and assets, respectively, for FI18. So, yes, there are, uh, we know that there are regulations for Chinese subsidiaries to guarantee the offshore, offshore bonds, and that's same as in India. So there are regulatory uh, restrictions on such operating company to to guarantee the bond, but most of these subsidiaries have uh, the Interplex owns 100%. Uh, there are two joint ventures, one in Thailand, one in China, and there are, if I remember correctly, two to three subsidiaries where they do have 75%, and we have adjusted our numbers based on. Uh, such joint ventures and two to three operating companies uh, where they have 75%. But apart from that, a large number of subsidiaries in China, India, Vietnam, and others, they own 100%. And we do believe that there are no restrictions in terms of those operating companies to upstream cash to Interplex. And in fact, in the last in a couple of years, we have seen that uh, those Chinese subsidies have been uh, upstreaming dividends on, on some occasions to, to interplex. So we are comfortable right. with the fact that despite they're not guaranteeing the bond, they are there is cash is fungible in between those entities, and they don't have uh, much debt at, at the moment, and the management also intends to not uh, significantly increase the increase the debt at those subsidiaries. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Lonitin.
We have another question from the line of uh, David Zhang. Please go ahead. Yeah, this is David again. Um, yeah, uh, would you like to elaborate more about the difference between HT Global and Interplex? We know that uh, they may not be comparable in a sense that HT Global is more in a BPO and BPS service, but uh, they are rated the same by Fitch as double B minus. Business side, HT Global has a much higher concentration in U.S. and uh, and a much smaller scale. In the financial side, HT Global has much uh, much higher kind of leverage and uh, instead is sitting on the whole, like a uh, whole code level whereas interplex it seems like the the rating should be a little bit higher than H global why they are rated similar thank you okay thank you uh, for the question so it's an interesting comparison with HD global although they are not direct peers but if we look at the IT service companies they are generally I would say the business's profile is generally stronger than our customized manufacturer because uh, you know the services they provide are very critical for for their customers and in many occasions the customers don't have their uh, IT teams within their organization and entirely depend on vendors like HD Global for their entire IT IT system. So I would say typically, you know, those services are uh, stickier in nature, uh, have a larger recurring revenue element in the contracts, and it's very rare to see uh, uh, them losing a customer because, uh, you know, there are multiple contracts with with one customers on multiple on multiple service areas. Interplex, I would say, is is you know. Uh, not a whole notch weaker than HT Global on business risk profile. It's slightly weaker, but we are comfortable with some of the elements of single sourcing, high customer switching cost, and the co-investments by customer element in this business. And we are, uh, and, and its leverage is, is slightly better than HT Global, which is now uh, touching about five times on FF purchase and net leverage. And if you're following HD Global, you would know that Baring has been extracting uh, dividends uh, and monetizing its investments through stake sales and 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 tapping the bond and and paying special dividend uh, on HD Global. So they left, despite the higher uh, growth of 10 to 12 percent and then good free cash flow profile of HD Global, the leverage you have still been uh, higher. And we have we have said that it, that company does have a low rating set room at double B minus. Interplex definitely uh, is you know is is some of the elements which I've just said uh, warrants that despite a, a high leverage, uh, not necessarily with HD Global but with other peers, uh, its overall credit profile is is okay at at double B minus. And uh, in terms of the the governance structure and in the overall organization structure, I would say Interplex is is better than State Global because Baring has sixty uh, percent now in Exemplar, and we do a proportionate consolidation in case of State Global. But in case of Interplex, uh, it's it's a hundred percent owned company, and it's it's uh, the maintenance governance and the secured loan documents does provide uh, visibility on compulsory 
uh, repayment of debt through the cash sweep mechanism. So overall, you know, we have yes, we have discussed in our in our committee as well. I think we are all comfortable with rating in the plexus that will be minus. Uh, can I, can I, yeah, can I just add something here? Um, it's Steve here. So, yeah, this is it is an interesting comparison. I think what we talked about in our committee was um, HC Global and Hexaware's growth is, you know, potentially quite a bit stronger than Interplex, and free cash flow generation is is you know, substantially stronger. Now, as has been said, a lot of that free cash flow is going to equity at the moment. But the fact that it is much, you know, quite strongly cash generative does give the, you know, the owners flexibility to maintain leverage should the business turn down or should growth halt, which is an element where there's less, there's less flexibility in, in, in Interplex. So... You know, that was that was another element of our, our discussions that that um Hexware and H T Global's growth and free cash flow generation um substantially better than Interplex. Thank you very much. As there are no further questions at this time, I'd like to hand the call back to speakers for any closing remarks. Okay, thank you. Uh, Since there are no further questions, yep. Sorry, Steve. Yeah, go ahead, right? Go ahead, right here. I was just going to say what you were going to say. <laughs> okay, all right. No, uh, thank thank you all uh, for joining this teleconference. Uh, if you have any further questions or would like to obtain copies of our publications, feel, please feel free to reach out to our analysts or the investor development team. Thank you once again. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude our conference for today. Thank you for participating. You may all disconnect.